Welcome back to the room. We're going to start with Hebrews chapter 10. And if you've been following along, you know that we have been in a, a, a long argument in the book. Not individually, I haven't argued with anybody yet. But we've been in a long argument in the book of Hebrews as to why you should persist in faith and not backslide. Why you should go forward and not shrink back out of faith. Uh, so this morning we are, are in Hebrews 10. And if you know the book of Hebrews, we've got a few uh, chapters left. Uh, We've got the exciting chapter of Hebrews 11, which is all about faith. Yeah, I heard a little whisper over here. It's all about faith, and uh, and so that's going to be an exciting chapter as well. And uh, 12 and 13 as well have uh, some really great passages in it. But for now, we're discussing why Jesus is better than everything. He's better than everything. The audience, the original audience, was tempted uh, to shrink back into Judaism uh, because of the persecution and the difficulties and the struggles that they had experienced. Many of them had been taken to prison. We read in in chapter 10, verse 38, uh, many of them had had their property confiscated. Uh, They were just suffering uh, terribly because of the name of Jesus Christ and because of their faith in Jesus. And so because of that, many of them were tempted to fall back into Judaism. But the author of this book is, uh, is pressing them, encouraging them, uh, trying to convince them that to go back is really, um, is really not an option. That going back into an obsolete, expired way of worship uh, is not the way forward. Well, this chapter, chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 1 through 18 this morning. Uh, And as we look at that, I want to just set the the stage for you here. This passage really describes the sufficiency, the once for all sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. It was sufficient. It was enough. It lasts for a lifetime, for, uh, for generations. There is no need to repeatedly have a sacrifice of Christ. It was a once-for-all effective sacrifice, and it was sufficient. And as I was thinking about this this week, uh, I started to think, what are some things that you have to do repeatedly uh, that you wish you didn't have to do? You know, the the opportunity for this came up while uh, my son was getting a haircut. And uh, and I just thought, wouldn't it be nice just to have one haircut forever? I, I don't have... I have that option. You don't. I have the same haircut for the last 10 or 15 years... Uh, and I don't, in my genetics, there won't be a whole lot of other uh, hairstyles uh, for me. But I started to think of all the things that we have to do uh, repeatedly. Eat, sleep, exercise, socialize, clean, make food, eat food, all those different things. That there is, there's not really anything in our lives that's once for all, is there? Is there anything in your life that is once for all? Do you have one job for all your career? Very few people do anymore. Do you have one house that you've lived in for all your life? Is there one marriage? Now, ideally, some of those things are once for life, right? We want once for life things. But even those things aren't guaranteed as a result of health issues and transfers and promotions and downsizing, trees falling into houses and things like that. All these things are temporary. And there's not much in our life that we know as Sufficient and lasting and enduring. But the sacrifice of Jesus is. And it's, it's not just been good for uh, the time period right around his resurrection. Right? It, did, it wasn't just good during that brief period uh, as the church began. It wasn't just good for that 
first century. But Jesus' sufficiency, his sacrifice on the cross, his, his ministry and changing and bringing life to people, it carried on into the second century and into the third century. And here we are 20 centuries later, and Jesus' death that was perfectly sufficient for the atonement for sin has not worn out at all. It's still as shiny and new as the day he died outside of Jerusalem in 33 A.D. This is a once-for-all permanent sacrifice. We're not looking forward to a better way to deal with our sin. God the Father has stamped His approval on Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, and He gave a receipt, which was the resurrection. When Jesus was raised back to life, it demonstrated that God accepted His permanent sacrifice. You think, why should I care about this? What does this matter for us today? And it matters because we tend to view the gospel in errant ways. We tend to stray from the gospel in errant ways when we try to add to the gospel. And what do I mean by that? Well, you probably remember in the Galatians controversy, when Paul wrote to the Galatians in that first chapter after his initial greetings, he is just furious Uh, After that, and he says, I'm so astonished that someone would come into your fellowship right away and that they would lead you astray. And he says, wasn't Jesus clearly portrayed as suffering and dying for your salvation? Why is it now that you have tried to add to his sacrifice on the cross legal requirements? You see, there was this group known as the Judaizers. And everywhere Paul and his missionary team would travel and preach the gospel and establish churches, this group of Jews would come around and they would just get into these fellowships and they would begin to say, even if you accept Jesus, you still have to follow the law. You're not really saved unless you contribute works. And the works that you have to contribute are all these Old Testament Levitical laws and all these sacrificial systems and all these things. And so they would go into all these places and the Galatian church seems to have bit on this deception. And so Paul is saying, why are you trying to add to the sacrifice of Christ? Now, how do we do this today? Well, it's very common in some uh, people's lives that if, if you've struggled and God has convicted you of a sin, that before you actually receive forgiveness for that sin, you feel like you need to add to that forgiveness a period of uh, sort of self Um, torture, where you feel like you have to sort of uh, beat yourself up and that it's not enough just to receive the forgiveness that God offers, but now you have to make yourself feel bad first and that the longer you feel bad uh, or maybe you have to make do some good works to make up for that. And so in so many subtle ways, we add to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice things that are not sufficiently adequate to atone for your sin. You see, your sin was atoned for. You, don't, you can't feel bad enough about your sin to receive forgiveness. You can't do a good work to make yourself feel better about the sins you've sinned. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for that. And so in other ways, we also we add to what it means to be saved. You think we have to maybe follow a line of ministry or missions or something like that in order for you to actually realize the full salvation that God has promised for you. If you're in Christ, you are fully in Christ. There is nothing you can add to the salvation that Jesus purchased for you. His death on the cross was perfectly sufficient to save you. And there is nothing you can add to his finished work. 
So if you have your Bible open to Genesis, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, let's read together verses 1 through 18. And I'm going to jump to verse 14 because this summarizes the whole passage. So we're going to read verse 14 first, and then we'll go back to 1 and read 1 through 18. But I want to show you what the passage can be summarized as by reading verse 14. So verse 14. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now that's the the clear summary of this passage. Jesus' once for all sacrifice is what is perfecting us and sanctifying us for all time. Now let's back up and read it in context, starting in verse 1. I'm going to stop along the way and make a couple of comments, but starting in chapter 10, verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now let's say you were getting on an airplane today, and you were going to sit, uh, you sit down in your seat and, and, and you may pull out a Bible or something or a Christian book. And, and the person sitting next to you begins to ask you questions about what you're doing and what you're reading. Uh, and you're opening this book and you've got just this brief period of time to explain to them the old covenant and the new covenant. Maybe that's one of their questions is, tell me about this book you're reading and you have to describe it. How would you summarize the Old Testament? If you had to explain it, to someone who didn't uh, have any knowledge of the Bible, had never read the Bible, had never read Scripture, but maybe they knew that, that the God of the Old Testament seems different from the God of the New Testament. What would you do to explain that? Well, this is a good starting point. Hebrews gives us this starting point by describing the law and the Old Covenant as a shadow. A shadow of things to come. It's, it's uh, um, a word that just means uh, shade or shadow. And, and we understand um, that, that the, uh, a shadow um, isn't a substance, right? Do you have any videos of your kids when they first discover their shadow? I was looking through uh, some uh, videos the other day and I saw uh, this one video of Lily when she was four and she was spinning around and she saw her shadow and she would come back around to it. And then it was just this kind of moment of awe and wonder, you know, when a kid discovers their shadow. And, and it was really cute. And I kind of wanted the moment to last. But, but just as soon as she discovered it, it was over. There wasn't a lot of amazement that lasted for a long time. As a matter of fact, it would be kind of weird. You rarely see uh, teenagers or adults standing and looking at their shadow. Um, unless they're making kind of puppet faces and things. But, um, but a shadow is not a substance, Right? A shadow is is not a substance. It's it's insufficient. And so if this is the cross and the light source coming from this direction uh, shines this way, then all of this shadow space is the old covenant. All of that shadow, all of the sacrificial system, all of the the priestly system, all of the Levitical laws, all of the Old Testament, all the stories of the Old Covenant, all of them um, pointed forward to the substance which was Jesus. And to go back and to be fascinated with the shadow in light of the reality uh, is just foolishness. This past week my mother visited she visits once a year and usually around Thanksgiving or Christmas and, and we go visit her. But during the year we text and we'll FaceTime and we'll call each other. And, and, but all those things are different. We're not doing that when she's here. 
Why would we settle for something less when the reality is here? In the same way as the Old Covenant, to go backward into the Old Covenant, into the priestly system, into the Levitical system, into the sacrificial system, into all these Old Covenant ways, with the reality being in front of us, is foolishness. So verse 1 tells us the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually made every year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2 says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, no longer have any consciousness of sins? There's this reality that it wasn't effective. Otherwise, they would have stopped doing it, right? If the sacrifice of bulls and goats and other animals and the sacrificial system, if it was sufficient to cleanse them from sin, they would have stopped doing it. But as it was, the moment they offered it, there was this fear that what if I sin again? I'm going to have to do this all again tomorrow. And then there was the once for all Yom Kippur catch-all that the high priest in Day of Atonement would go in and he would make atonement for all the sins that you just didn't know that you had committed. And so it was insufficient. F.F. Bruce said it this way, if the old order had been able to bring perfection, and he says perfection is this, access to God without the constant necessity of removing the barrier of freshly accumulated sin. You hear that? Perfection, which is access to God without the constant necessity of removing the barrier of freshly accumulated sin, then surely the sacrifices which belong to it would have come to an end. If the old order had possessed true cleansing efficacy, that is to say, if it had been able to cleanse the conscience, then the worshipers would have enjoyed unrestricted communion with God, which is what you were created for. You were created for unrestricted communion with God. To have a deep and intimate fellowship with your Creator. And sin became the barrier for that. F.F. Bruce continues, he says, It is the presence of sin in the conscience that hinders that communion. Have you ever noticed that? That the more you read your Bible and the more you fellowship with God, the more uh, intimate you become with Him, the closer you are to Him, the less you want to sin. And the more you sin and the more you struggle with your flesh, the less you want to spend time with God in the Word and with His people and in the fellowship. And it is in those ways that we can experience uh, this unrestricted communion when we have this forgiveness of sins that God offers. Uh, Psalm 66 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And the implication of the author's argument is that true inward cleansing is permanently effective and therefore unrepeatable. That's what this section is about. The Old Covenant had these repeatable ways in which sin was put off for a time. Actually put forward until the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, in New Orleans, they sell this soap. And it's, uh, it's called uh, Sin Cleanser. And it says no matter what you did last night, you just get in the shower and this soap will wash away all your sins. It's like a gag gift that you would buy at a gag gift store or something. And, and in that way, it's totally ineffective. It has no power to actually cleanse you from your sins. But this passage reminds us that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. It was sufficient. 
Verse 3 says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That is, they're always before us in this Old Testament sacrificial system. You think about your sins. They're always before you. They're always, um, you're always having to sacrifice for them. Because it's impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So why did they have to do it? Why did they have to do it? Why did God ordain that they should sacrifice animals for their sin? We talked about this a few weeks ago, that, that uh, blood is precious, blood is life, and life is precious. And so because of the sacrifice of something precious to them, uh, it reminded them that sin was costly. It wasn't, it wasn't free. It cost somebody something. But the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to remove the sin completely. All it did was it pointed forward. It held the wrath of God back for a time. See, the wrath of God was coming. And it was fully poured out on Jesus on the cross. We often think of Jesus as saving us from our sins. But you can also think of it as this way, is that Jesus saved you from God. Jesus saved you from the wrath of God by stepping between you and His wrath. And He bore it all on your behalf because He loves you. Jesus saved us from God's wrath. And so anytime that they would offer a sacrifice in the Old Covenant, they would do so as an act of faith that there is coming one who will take away the sins of the world. There is coming one whose blood will be effective in the washing away of sin. Verse 5 continues, says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And he's quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And it's interesting that the author attributes that to Jesus. Jesus wrote when he came into the world. It's an interesting point here. And, and at a different time, maybe we could stop and tease out the way in which Jesus could write through the, the person of David, a passage that Jesus himself would come and quote and would also fulfill. But it's sufficient enough for now to say that, that as the author of all Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed by the Holy Spirit, that men were carried along, and that Jesus in John 1 is the, the Word of God made flesh, and that in the beginning there was, uh, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that in all those ways, Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit are all authoring the Scripture, whether it be through David or not. And so Jesus can be said to have written Psalm 40, through the mouth of David. But the point that he's making is this, that uh, David knows that these sacrifices and these offerings are not fully sufficient to wash away their sin. But a body that you have prepared. And so God was preparing the body of Jesus that it would be the one that takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 7 he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying and he was uh, pouring out drops of blood because he was so devastated over what it would mean for him to go to the cross. He was realizing the pain. He was realizing the agony that he would be fully separated from God the Father that for the first time in eternity that he would be separated from God and that he would know something that he never knew. Right? Second Corinthians 5 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That Jesus in the garden experienced the agony of knowing that he was going to bear the weight of sin on his shoulders. But what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. In fulfillment of this very passage, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 80 says, 
When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are all offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And so by doing, he does away with the first in order to establish the second better sacrifice of Jesus. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus offered himself once for all, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He didn't have to continually offer sacrifices. He didn't have to do this over and over and over again. It was good enough and sufficient enough the first time. Verse 11 continues that point. He says, every priest stands daily at service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's our key verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We think of perfected, and it's kind of a funny word in the way we use it. Um, when we think of perfected. So let me um, help us understand what it means here. For example, if you were to confront me about something that was true of me, a few weeks ago I had a conversation with somebody and I just revealed that I struggle with finishing what I start. And there was kind of a laugh like, oh yeah, we know. We understand that about you. And it was a deficiency in my character. It's a struggle that I have. I'm always excited about what's next and struggle to complete what's been completed, what's, what's was started uh, before. And so it's a, it takes all the self-effort. I see some of you agree with me because you may be like me. There's a lot of grace in the room for people like me, uh, hopefully. <laughs> but it's a struggle and it's difficult. But, but what, if, what if somebody confronted me about that? And let's say that I was... Uh, I had a blind spot and I didn't realize this weakness in my own life and I became really defensive about it. And and so as you can can, uh, confronted me about this issue, maybe I say, well, nobody's perfect. And I said that in kind of a defensive way. And we hear that a lot, that that there's a weakness in our life that keeps us from perfection. I don't think any of us are under the delusion that we're perfect except for a couple of minor character flaws. Right? If you are, let's talk later, right? But we have this notion and we throw out this idea of perfection, especially when it comes to confrontation or when it comes to uh, some sort of struggle in relationships that, well, I'm not perfect and you expect me to be perfect. No, it's not that way at all. And when it says here that, that when Jesus sacrificed for you, that you became perfect, he's not meaning it in the same way that we would use and understand the idea of perfect what does the author mean? This word teliaso means to make whole or to perfect or to fulfill. And it's used in a variety of ways. It's used in, in the idea that, if, um, that if, if I had a pie in front of me and, uh, and I took a quarter of that pie because you can't eat a, a slice of pumpkin pie. Uh, you have to eat a quarter of it. But if I took that out, that pie would be no longer whole. There would be a a quarter-shaped sliver missing from it, and it's no longer perfect. It's no longer whole. But if I put that back in there, it's made whole. It's made whole. In the same way that when God created Adam and Eve, and when He created mankind, it was His desire that they be united with Him in a relationship. 
in a fellowship, in an intimacy, in a, in a relationship by which we walk with Him and He walks with us and we talk to Him and, and He talks to us and we have this love, worship, union with God. But what happened? When sin entered the world, it created this conflict, this tension, this barrier between us and God. It was the removing of something from your heart that left you partially empty. There's something missing in your life if you're not in Christ. There's an emptiness. There's a longing for something to fulfill that place deep inside your soul. And if you've not walked with Jesus or you've not grown up uh, as a Christ follower, you've never given your life to Christ, the longer you go, you know the feeling of that emptiness inside of you. It's unscratchable. <laughs> That's even a word. It's, it's something that you just can't get to. And no matter what you try to do to fill that emptiness in your life, nothing brings you satisfaction and wholeness. But Jesus, by a single offering, has made you whole. Does that make sense? He's perfected what was lacking in your life. It was the perfect puzzle piece to make you united with God, like you were created to be, to make you whole. To regain what was lost in the fall is regained at conversion. Verse 15 says, The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for all time. And it has an effect on us. You can have a clean conscience. Jesus' sacrifice was, sacrifice was sufficient to perfect the believer's conscience, to purify you and cleanse you from sin. Uh, in 2007, I had a realization. I was working at UPS, and I worked the night shift during seminary, and we would all pile into these uh, ugly buses, and we would drive and be shuttled through security and another layer of security, and and then we would go into these places where our crews would meet. And, and from this long trip where you first flash your badge to the time you're kind of sitting in your work area, it could be up to 30 minutes depending on the, the heaviness of the traffic at the airport there in Louisville, Kentucky. And I, was, I loved it. I loved my time there in some ways. Um, I hated working night shift, but, but I enjoyed um, I enjoyed being able to have my school paid for. That was a nice thing. Uh, I enjoyed being able to provide for my family financially. Uh, and I always had really good, interesting conversations. And I remember uh, this one particular revelation that I had this, uh, this time. Uh, we were making this long drive in, and uh, there was a group of us friends talking. And one particular girl, uh, a grad student at the University of Louisville, um, they would always kind of catch themselves when I was around because they knew I was a pastor and they knew I was training in, in seminary and that I talked about Jesus a lot. So it kind of made things awkward. You know what I mean? Uh, they couldn't always just say what they wanted to say. And I get this a lot. It's, it's not a big deal, but, but they would. And so occasionally they would say something and then they would immediately say, are you judging me? Are you judging me? I feel like you're judging me right now. Well, this particular time, she was telling the story, and, and she immediately said that. And I have to admit, I wasn't even really listening. I have no idea what she was saying. I wasn't actively judging her. I don't really actively judge anybody. Uh, but the realization that I had 
the realization that I had is that in the process of telling something, she revealed an act that she felt really guilty about. And she felt really guilty about this. And the fact that I was within listening distance and that she knew I was a Christ follower and I didn't really engage in the behavior she was describing, it triggered this conviction for her. And, and so she had this guilty conscience. And she kind of projected those feelings of guilt and somehow made that my fault. Like I was the one doing something to her. But I realized in that moment something really important. It's, it's stuck with me for these 11 years is that uh, maybe you would understand this. Have you ever had a feeling that's just under the surface? Maybe it's a, a deep sadness. And if somebody were to say, how you doing? Just a little tear will leak. Uh, and, and there's like a dam that's holding back a flood of emotion. Or maybe it's a, 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 a joy or a gladness in your life that, uh, that at the slightest bit of humor, you can smile and laugh. And, and it doesn't take much for you to hold back that emotion. Or maybe you um, struggle with, um, with anger. And it just doesn't take much to set you off. That feeling is just under the surface. That emotion is right there. Just anything can be an instant, send you into an instant rage. Maybe too much information. Maybe if I have to start a sentence with too much information, I should probably not say it. But, but I'm glad that my kids don't know the sound of a leather belt being pulled through. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> Whatever these things are called. <laughs> I'm glad they don't know that sound. Because, you know, I was raised in, in a time when something set my dad off. If something set him off, there was a sound of leather pulled through a belt loop. It just took that much uh, in this period of time for him to go off and for him to be angry. And then, you know, then I would just run. Then it would just be a run through the house trying to, trying to get away. And that made him even more mad. But, uh, but it was... Um, it was one of those things that I thank God for, that my kids don't know the, the sound of that, um, that trigger. If you have a guilty conscience, there is something that you're suppressing right under the surface. There is something that you're suppressing right under the surface, that, that if somebody looks at you sideways, you instantly think, oh, he's judging me. There's something that I did. There's something that, that I've done. He knows what I did last night. Or they know what I've done over this past few months. Or they know what's in my life. That there's, there's a sort of paranoia about a guilty conscience that eats away at you and eats away at us. Jesus cleanses your conscience. Jesus cleanses your conscience. He is able to wipe all that away. Because how many sins has Jesus forgiven in your life? All of them. All of them, right? Not just the ones you committed yesterday. Not the ones you committed last week or last year. Not the ones that you'll commit today. And not the sins that you'll commit tomorrow. He's, he's forgiven all of it. In Christ Jesus, it is finished. All your sins are forgiven. He has given you a clean conscience. A conscience that says, I don't have to bear the weight of my sin any longer. It's so funny that you're... Your greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. And have you ever read in the Gospels when somebody would come up to Jesus uh, and they would have an obvious physical need and Jesus would forgive their sins? 
And, and I, the first few times I read this and noticed this, I would say, oh, I think you missed the point, Jesus. <laughs> they don't need forgiveness of sins. For example, Mark chapter 2, Jesus returned to Capernaum. And so many people gathered that there was no more room, even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they couldn't get near to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had finally made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Can you see this scene in your mind? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, stand up and walk, right? No, he didn't say that. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this guy thought his greatest need was to be healed of his paralysis. And Jesus saw his greatest need as to have a cleansed conscience from sin. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there and they questioned in their hearts, why does he speak like that? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned this way within themselves, said to them, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, rise up and take your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Can you identify with that? You may think that your greatest need is blank. You may think that your greatest need is a better career. You may come to God today and say, my greatest need is a better spouse or a a, a restored marriage or um, or a, a greater vacation, or healing from a sickness, or from a disease, or some mental illness, or from anxiety, or a struggle that you're carrying around. You might think that your greatest need is one thing, but God knows you needed forgiveness and a clean conscience so that you can live in His presence. And in Christ, you can have a cleansed conscience and forgiveness of sins. His sacrifice accomplished your greatest need. Look at verse 15 again. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why don't we see Jesus coming back? Because there's forgiveness. Why isn't he offering himself again and again and again? Because he did it once for all and he gave forgiveness. And his forgiveness can give you a cleansed conscience. Let me close with this. Uh, Flip over with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I hope that this is helpful. It may not be helpful, but I hope it's helpful to you. Because oftentimes when we don't view the sufficiency of Christ, when we don't see Jesus as enough, we try to fill the hole in our life with other things. We try to put more things in there along with Jesus, and it just doesn't work. But in Christ, when you view Him as the sufficiency, as the all-you-need, once-for-all sacrifice, once you begin to realize that, 
you begin to see all these different blessings that you have in Christ. If you're with me in Romans chapter 8, there are 50 blessings in Christ in this list. I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, you're welcome. But, but in this list, I want to point out a couple of things because uh, a mentor of mine uh, from my college days, a man named Bill Ellis, who pastors a church in Little Rock, Arkansas, he said one of the greatest battles that we must fight as Christ followers is discouragement. It can hang on us like a winter cloud, depleting us of our joy and robbing us of the confidence we need to lead others. We have no burdens and no desire when our eyes have been taken off of the sufficiency of Christ. But when we endure with the sufficiency of Christ, we experience an abundance of extraordinary results. What does he mean? It means that as you begin to dwell on the sufficiency of Christ for your life, you begin to realize all the blessings that he has for you. Romans 8, verse 1. We are no longer under any condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, we are set free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, Christ did something for us that we could not do by condemning sin in his flesh on our behalf. Verse 4, we can now fulfill the law as we walk in the Spirit. We never had that ability to do that before. Verse 5, our minds are set and directed and focused on the things of the Spirit, and we have the capacity to think in entirely new realms. Verse 6, we now have life and peace instead of death. Uh, verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 7, our mind is no longer hostile toward God. There is a natural hostility in the sinful man. The, a natural desire to shake his fist and say, God, you haven't done for me. A hostility, but that's broken down in Christ. Verse 8, we can now please God. Verse 9, we belong to Him. Verse 10, our spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11, His spirit gives life to our mortal bodies. Verse 12, we are under obligation to live by the Spirit, not to our flesh, and this is a wonderful pressure. Verse 13, we now live. Verse 14, we're led by the Spirit. Verse 15, we're children of God. Verse 16, we no longer have a spirit of slavery that leads us to fear. We don't have to be dominated by fear and worry and anxiety. Verse 17, we have a spirit of adoption by which we call God our Abba Father. Verse 18, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we know Him and are His children. Verse 19, because we're children, we're now heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. Verse 18, the sufferings of the present time can't be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. Verse 23, our bodies will be completely redeemed. Verse 24, we have hope. Verse 27, the Spirit helps us in our weakness by praying for us. And He does this perfectly because He intercedes and prays for you according to God's will. Verse 28, He will cause all things to work together for good as we are loving Him and called according to His purpose. Verse 29, we have a glorious purpose. Uh, verse, 20, uh, uh, verse 30 says, He has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified us. Verse 31, God is for us, so who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. There are 30 more blessings from being in Christ. Let me challenge you with this. If you're discouraged in your walk with Christ, if you don't see Jesus as sufficient, maybe you're not dwelling on all the blessings that come with being in Christ. Read Romans 8. Write out verse by verse every day 
And for seven days, just begin to meditate on all the blessings that you have in Christ Jesus. And as you magnify Jesus in your life and dwell and meditate on the great things that he's accomplished for you, you will see that he is the only thing you need. He is all sufficient. Father, we do thank you for that. We thank you that in Jesus is the all sufficient sacrifice, not just to atone for our sins, but to give us life. That Jesus is able to bring life to us where there wasn't life before. So we worship you for that. We thank you that when we were dead in our sins, that you sent Jesus, born of a woman, into the world to be sin for us so that we might become adopted children of God. We praise you for that. We thank you that there is nothing more we need. And there is nothing backward that we can run to that compares to what we have in you, Jesus. I pray that you would give us the grace and strength to endure by faith, that you would help us to encourage one another with all the blessings that we have in Christ. I pray for this fellowship, for those in the room who are really struggling, who this morning they may have thought, if only I had this in my life, if only this would happen for me, then my life would be better. Would you help them to see that it is only the sufficiency of Christ that satisfies? Would you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus? the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Father, would you help us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary in our walk with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.